Hey everybody, welcome back to What Would The Smart Party Do? We're here again. We said we weren't going to do this so often. I know. <laughs> my old dance partner has been marking my card and telling me we've got interesting people to speak to. So I thought, yeah, let's do this one more time. Let's get the gang back together. Hello, guys. Hello, Baz. Yes, we've got a, a wonderful guest, and I've got bad news for you. I've got another one for next week as well. Oh, it's also, well. It, this this promise that we had, this New Year's resolution to take it easy, it's gone out the window. <laughs> Didn't even last January. Yeah. <laughs> tempted me out of retirement with some good ones, though. So, um, yeah, I mean, this is this is good stuff. We've we've um, we we were, well, I think we can say we're honoured. We, we're getting some very very pleasant hobbyist people coming on to talk to us and and to you guys out there in the smart party about what they're up to these days so um for this week uh we have got mr mike merles on the show the director of all things dungeons and dragons the man who brought us fifth edition the man who brought us fourth edition for that matter <laughs> yeah he is he is the ampersand between the two d's frankly so if it's D, he's the man and uh mike came on and we had a we had a really nice conversation with with mike i think it's fair to say yeah, it's a great book. I think his official title is D&D Creative Lead. And yeah. normally in companies, when you get a creative lead, that means they can't think of what they do, so they're given uh-huh. a made-up title. Uh, but when, it's, when it comes to a creative game, I think having that title is a really cool one to have because it gives you – that doesn't mean just – or to me anyway, it doesn't evoke just making rules up. It means the whole creative experience. It means the whole like D&D in all less aspect, aspects rather than just the technical detail. Yeah, but still, if I were Mike, I'd want to have Dungeon Master on my passport. That's true. Realistically, that that no, should be true, he should be the only DM TM should have the trademark. I am the dungeon master, and all of you lot are game masters because that's kind of what D and D does to the world sometimes. <laughs> so, yeah, but what what a delightful guest to have on though, and um, a very humble man actually, and uh, and speaks with real passion for his hobby. So, well, you could be the judge of that in just a few minutes, I guess. Yeah, it's really good when you get someone who's, who's just genuinely excited to talk about the topic. I'd love my job to be like that if I got so excited talking about it still after many years of being in the same place. Uh, and he, he does a bunch of other stuff as well. It's well worth checking out the Mike Mills Happy for an Hour if you're interested in D&D design at all, where he, he kind of goes through his design process and makes some new subclasses and, and that kind of thing and gets people chatting in when he does it. I think it's on a small hiatus at the minute, but check out Twitch and YouTube as well because he's got various bits all around there of things that he does and you can get involved with. Not as good as our interview, obviously, but he does have that extra content. Clearly, yeah. I mean, Mike's always been good across the years. He's always been very, uh, very open, very approachable. Um, otherwise, he wouldn't come on our show. So you know, he's very, very generous with his time and always has been. And that's really good for you know for the man behind Dungeons and Dragons to be accessible to its to its fans and to field questions and concerns and you know and you know sometimes take some quite tough questions as well. That's that's a big deal. I think it would be very easy for someone who works these days for Hasbro to just you know not come out of their office and and just like uh, clock off every night, go home and not talk to the community. But yeah, I, I've come away from this conversation thinking that uh, Wizards of the Coast very much want to speak to the people who are consuming their products and they want to they want to you know have a two way dialogue going on. So it's really good of Mike to come on the podcast. I think you'll be really interested in the things he's got to say. Many of our loyal listeners uh, were good enough to give us some questions in advance, which you and I put to Mike, and you'll better hear his answers. And I don't think he shied away from anything. No, not at all. And in fact, some of the questions that we asked, which I thought might just get a, a one-line reply, we got quite a thoughtful answer to them as well, didn't we? So that was always <laughs> Yeah, the so-called lightning round is more of a gelatinous cube round. <laughs> 
they weren't. <laughs> we couldn't really get instant answers. <laughs> That's awesome. I'm, I might rename it for our next guest. <laughs> yeah, take take a slow punt at this one. Discuss. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, as you say, ever so grateful to Mike for coming on. Uh, really engaging guest. Answered a lot of questions, came up with some stuff of his own as well, and, and great insights into what's going on in D&D right now. So this is all forming part of our little sequence, which we didn't plan, where we've talked about D&D quite a bit. So last couple of podcasts, uh, we've been looking back at some stuff from the Dungeon Master's Guide, and we've done some bonus casts as well about using that to sort of generate some adventures and what have you, late to the party. But if you're late to the smart party and you want to check back in the last couple of podcasts, We've done a few bits of D&D-related stuff recently, and we'll continue to do so. And obviously, you know, we're going to cover a lot of other topics over the coming weeks and months of two, like we always do. And, you know, can we reveal the names of some of the people we've got coming up, guys? Should we do that? Should we try and be rock and roll about it? Or should we just be rubbish and just say that we've got Mike Mason coming on to talk to us soon about stuff from Chaosium? Uh, well, yeah, he's one of the high-profile names that we've got. We've got others in the bag as well. But let's uh, let's not spoil it too much. Tune in next week after Mike, and we'll tell you who the next one is after that. There you yeah, go. Yeah. Only got a few mics on. Enough to blend <laughs> for the for one podcast, yeah. And, and bef- before we get to the meat of this, this week's episode, just want to give a quick shout-out to Dan, Philippe, Matthew, and Nick, our brand-new patrons this month. So... Thanks to all the role patrons as well. Of course, everyone who supports us drops a few copper pieces in the jar that helps us pay web hosting costs uh, and keep us on the air so we can bring you more great content. Thanks, guys. We all appreciate that. It really does keep us motivated. Cheers. So without further ado, here's the very personable Mike Mills. The Smart Party are raising funds to help with the running costs of the show. We use Patreon, which is kind of like a modern magic item that turns you into a connoisseur of all that is good in gaming. To show your support, just head over to patreon.com slash thesmartparty. You can donate a dollar, a credit, a copper piece, or a fiver per month. It all goes into the portable whole of web hosting costs and helps us look after you every month with new Smart Party content. Patreons get a big thanks from us, some backer-only goodies as and when, and the warm, confident glow of the just and righteous to help you sleep at night. Join the Smart Party at patreon.com today and tell all your friends tomorrow. Cheers! Hello, uh, Mr. Mike Mills. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing well. We actually, uh, for wintertime in Seattle, we actually have blue skies and sun. So I'm really enjoying this. <laughs> so it's a nice change of pace. You know, you know how to treat a UK audience, don't you? Talking about the weather <laughs> within five <laughs> seconds. Consumer professional, love it. <laughs> we could do this forever, you know, but we'll be polite about it too. <laughs> it's snowing where I am, unbelievably. Oh. Yeah, it's, actually, it's just starting to snow. So it's yeah, January weather in the UK can work. Well, it could be anything, to be honest. It might be sunny by the time we finish this, and it's the middle of the night, so I don't know how that's going to happen. So Seattle, how's it treating you? It's treating me well. You know, the, uh, the I know a lot of the states right now, are they're getting snow. They're getting um, some really freezing weather. But we've mm-hmm. had actually pretty mild winter out here. And I've been keeping busy with a lot of work stuff, which is good. Uh, and I have a four-year-old at home who is definitely in her sort of testing the boundaries phase. So <laughs> yeah. it's uh, it's definitely life with someone who decides that there is, that every situation can be escalated into a tense battle of wills, no matter how trivial. So <laughs> <laughs> we, uh, we traditionally, we don't do what other podcasters stuff do. They normally say like, how did you get into the hobby? And I'm sure you've been asked that before, but we like to work backwards. So um, what have you been working on this week, Mike? <laughs> 
So working on right now, we have a couple products we have coming out this year. They have not yet been announced, so I can't go into details. Mm -hmm. But a lot of what I'm doing right now is uh, on one of them, it's really just getting the last pieces put together to uh, mm -hmm. to make the product complete. Uh, this is a book that's going to be going to the printer in about a month or so. And so it's uh, at this stage, a lot of it is just making sure we have everything that should be in the book is there and accounted for. And if it's not, we have to pretty quickly put it together and make sure it's in there. So that, that that's kind of a nice, I, I, I kind of, I've always enjoyed this phase of a project because you get to take a look back at everything you built and see it all coming together. It's also when we first really see the pages and the full layout with the art. Mm -hmm. So it's now, it's looking like how someone who purchases the book will see it. And then on the other side of the coin, we have a book that is essentially in the opposite state where it's now just, we've just, just started uh, doing the design work on it. So it's it's starting to come together. We have uh, assignments out to writers. We have the art order we're putting together. So it's it's been very interesting having my sort of brain pulled in two very different directions. The mm. um, you know one project leaving while one project's really now coming into shape and and really getting serious about putting the work into it to to bring it to life. How, how far ahead do you do you operate? So the thing you're putting the finishing touches to now. How long before the public sees that? Uh, it's a few months. So usually um, when a, when a, we release a book, and I think I'll, I'll be off a little bit on this, but it's about 10 weeks from when we send a book to the printer to when okay. it shows up on store shelves. So the, um, and most of our work, there's really two phases. The conceptual work starts far ahead of release, uh, the release date, probably uh, up to two or three years before a book actually comes out. We're thinking wow. about what could be in it. If you follow like the Unearthed Arcana web series, uh, we do. We're often just testing concepts to see, like, we think this is interesting to the players, you know. And then if sometimes that's very directed, like this is something which we know is going to go into a product, and mm -hmm. other times that's more just speculative material. You know, we see if this strikes a chord, then we'll sort of put it aside and see, okay, where where could this fit in? But when it comes to actually writing the book, you know, like generating a really detailed outline, that usually starts at about eighteen months before it's on store shelves. Mm -hmm. And the actual design work will start about a calendar year before, you know, give or take a little bit. So essentially, we start with some general concepts of where we want to go. That's like the two or three years out. Then that settles into now we want to make this a product. What should be in that product? What will make it something that's really going to connect with players and Dungeon Masters? That's yeah. like a year and a half out. And then a year out is when we actually have designers sitting down and generating text and filling out that, you know, building the actual product. Okay. So how does it feel? Because currently the, the sort of D&D &D product line is relatively slow-paced compared to how things used to be in 4th edition. For example, the number of physical books hitting shelves is a lot different pace now than it was. So how does that feel? Is that giving you more time to produce a, a more involved book? Or is it do you kind of miss not being able to put more out? Because as you say, you're kind of looking a year and a half advanced to find out what might be interesting. Well, maybe it won't be by the time the book actually comes out almost or that kind of thing. So how, how yeah. does that work out with having fewer releases, but, but probably more detailed content? Yeah, you know, it, it's um, there are definitely trade-offs in it creatively. What I like about it is that there is a real sense of, I don't want to say purpose. I think that's probably overselling it, but a real sense of, culling our ideas till we get down to what we know will be still relevant 18 months from now. So you have mm. like, you know, you have more of a focus on what's really foundational or what are going to be like really like big thing, big ideas we want to bring to the game. It does kind of 
put more pressure on each product, but in some ways that I think helps sharpen the product and that you really have to think, is this worth one of our release slots? What are we going to do? What are we going to bring to the table that will really be worth people paying attention to? The one thing I do miss is the some of the experimentation that, that we could do, where you could afford within a book, you'd have enough like sort of nooks and crannies you had to fill with content that you could try little odd one-off ideas to see where they go. We try to capture that with Unearthed Arcana, but that's not always necessarily something that you can do. But I think overall, I like the more the slower pace. We found when we were playtesting fifth edition back, you know, a few, you know, four or five years ago now, that the the players seem to prefer. We always, I always like to say, the plan we're using now is the plan for today. You never know things could change. Mm. But what we did find at that time, and still seems to be, you know, trending in this direction, that people like the slower pace. You know, it seems to be matching mm. more how they're playing the game. And so that's probably at the end of the day what would really drive it. If we saw people wanting more content, or depending on how things evolved. You know, it's not something that is like a law of a universal law of role playing games. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it part of it, I think, is the audience we're selling to now. And it's the other thing I reflect. I I, I was playing the um, I have an NES Classic, little micro console that Nintendo released, and I realized playing some of those games that, especially before we had ubiquitous internet, you know, games at our fingertips through Steam or an App Store or something, that I consumed games much differently. You know, I was playing a game, Ninja Gaiden. I don't know if you're either you're familiar with it. It's a incredibly difficult game. Like it is just punishing. I, I am I just went with my 43 year old reflexes. I'm trying to play it. I am constantly getting beaten up by these like little monkeys that are jumping off the screen and these you know street tough guys. My ninja is not being very ninja like. He's being much more of a punching bag. And then I, you know, I'm barely muddling through the level. And then I hear this beeping and realize, oh, there's a countdown timer. So not only am I playing horribly, but I'm playing too slow. <laughs> and I realized my first reflex was to just stop. You know, like I'll just play something else. Yeah. And then thinking back to 1988 or whenever it was, I actually played this game for the first time. My reflex really was to keep playing. You know, to really see this as a challenge. I want to master mm-hmm. this. And I think we see now gamers in general because of the so much content out there, they want things that are very much have a purpose and that they can very easily get into. That they can feel like they can master it without a lot of sort of un- unreasonable demands being put on them. Hmm. And they feel like they can really understand a game. And so I think that's really what's driving a lot of that, you know, the, the slower pace, you know, where people feel like I want to be able to buy each book, consume it, understand it, and then move on. I, I don't want to have this sense that I'm going to like dive in super deep, super fast, go all out, then go to the next thing, then go to the next thing. You know, they kind of want to have their sense that they could be a bit more leisurely about it. And so I, th- I think that's one of the sort of cultural changes we've seen with role-playing games. And it's, it's, been, it's been interesting to watch. And what I think is really fun about my job right now is watching. We have so many new players coming in to wonder, like, what will, what will change? You know, like, in five years, what will the sort of typical approach be for a player or dungeon master? Will we, will we see a shift there generationally? It may be that, um, I, I guess, I think we may be in a transition period because we're always in a transition period, I suppose, aren't we? Yeah. But it's interesting that, you know, you've got three guys on this podcast who are all north of 40, and we still think about D&D as a book-related product. Um, we talk about books coming out and books on shelves. But I, I'm going to guess, and you would know, that a, a big major, a big proportion of certainly the people coming into the game new, maybe don't have that sort of page-turning, hardback book element to their hobby right now because there are so many other ways to access it and wizards of the coast of course is is supplying some of that demand 
Yeah, and I think that's what you see, especially with the virtual tabletops, uh, Roll20, similar tools. The I think right now where we are, the book still seems to be something that has an appeal to people. Mm-hmm. I know uh, maybe about five or ten years ago, there's a real sense that ebooks were going to do to paper books what MP3s, you know, which what, what digital did to music, you know, to yeah. album sales. Yeah. And it hasn't been quite as much of a, a transformation as we saw maybe with music. One thing I know, and I, I still, I, I think the, the digital platforms are very good for the sort of task-focused player or dungeon master. I need to know what Fireball does. So I just mm-hmm. want to type in Fireball and find it. Where if you're taking what I think of as like the leisurely stroll through the rules, I often find if I'm preparing for a session, I just want to flip through our monster books and I might see a creature and just be inspired by the art and think, oh, I haven't used I haven't used a tool in a while and the character's, you know, it's down by the seashore. So why don't I throw one of those in the adventure? And it'd be interesting, especially, I mean, to your point, as we progress, like generationally, generationally, I don't know if we see a trend where like younger players are more digital. Like I just, I just, we just don't know, you know, I can't Mm -hmm. say for sure either way, but it will be interesting to see like how that affects how people approach the game. You know, in five years, are people more thinking of it as, you know, it's a digital tool set I'm using. And then, you know, does that affect how they want to consume content? You know, do they want more smaller releases? Do they want more of a subscription service? You know, things like that. And that's why I think it keeps it exciting. Even the role-playing games are, you know, they're, they're 40 something years old and they have a, a lot of ways are very much the way they were played, you know, in the seventies, they're still being played today, you know, in terms of mm-hmm. equipment at the table, there's still a lot of interesting ways in which they can evolve. You know, I think, I think it keeps it interesting from a design perspective. I think uh, I think it's uh, it's good timing. I think D and D is officially forty five years old this week. I saw yep. Yep, John Peterson right. managed to nail it down to a specific day, which is a good job. So, uh, but in the in the world of entertainment media, that's a snapshot, isn't it? It's, it's half the yeah. time of cinema, and it's only you know it's less than pop music. So yeah. it's still got a long way to develop and a long way to go. So yeah, I mean, five years, who knows? And in twenty years, nobody knows. Exactly, Nobody knows yeah. how people will be accessing Dungeons and Dragons, but it, maybe I'll be around to find out. Doubt yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> well, if so, so a few con saves by then. <laughs> <laughs> so D and D is probably more diverse now than it's ever been. Certainly in, in terms of player base and, and the formats in which people approach it, and there seems to be this whole new wave of younger gamers. Certainly, things like the Twitch streams and YouTube are bringing all those kind of guys in as well. So is there anything specifically that the D&D team are doing to try and retain those gamers into the hobby? Because uh, I don't know, for us, back in the day when we were told about D&D, it seemed to be the thing you got into, and you just either stuck with it, or a certain subset of friends have got kind of went to the deep freeze, as they call it, where they got a wife and kids, and then have come back recently and all the yeah. rest of it. But with, with a like a seemingly much more keen and engaged younger audience, is there anything that you, you think you're doing that might be keeping hold of those people and, and keeping that that interest and enthusiasm over a long period of time. I think one of the things that's helped us is um, with streaming, especially we've made a real effort to get out of the way when it makes sense for us to just get out of the way. You know, if someone wants to stream D and D, we didn't show up saying, well, we did a licensing fee or something like that. <laughs> uh, but then also really trying to, to connect with a, a, a wide range of, of groups that do play D and D online to help you know, work with them, you know, 
get them early access to our content. We're releasing storylines, invite them to some of our, our kickoff events. You know, we do like a, a, a marketing reveal. Here's the new product to help kind of create the sense of community amongst mm-hmm. uh, streamers. And, uh, you know, if we're doing, doing it right, what, you know, what we aim for is this really a supportive community, you know, a community where people feel like we, everyone's here to help each other succeed. Uh, it's sure. not competitive. It's not, you know, only one person can, can rule. And I think that's helped because it's helped increase the reach of D&D online than otherwise where it, it may have stopped, you know, shorter of where it's going now in terms of just the, the volume of streamed games, of, of videos on YouTube, of podcasts. Because I think overall, we're not technology experts, you know, and if we if our job was to predict the future 20 years from now and be right, uh, that's a, it's a pretty difficult task. So really just trying to stay flexible. And kind of let the audience lead the way, you know, like sure. putting in, yeah. you know, putting in place where we can be flexible, we can respond, and we can work with people, and not trying to be very dictatorial about what other people are doing with our game. And, and I think that extends across the hobby. You know, I think the more people that are role playing, even if they're playing games other than D anD D, that's just a, a it's a good thing for the hobby in general. You know, the mm. more people are familiar with the style of game, the more people playing, the more people the, that you know from a very frankly, commercial standpoint, the more people we can sell products to. Do you think um, D&D still counts as like the, the shortcut for role-playing games almost in language? Because that's like, I sometimes want to tell people to play role-playing games, but not say D&D specifically because there might be a preconception about what that kind of game is. It's almost like I went to a Microsoft uh, thing at one point and the, I laughed at the guy because he said, um, yeah, if you want to know more, just bing it. Yeah. Like, do you mean Google it? Like yeah. nobody says, "What's wrong with you?" Uh, and if it feels almost like saying D and D is like saying Google in a search engine, so it's that kind of. When I say D and D, I mean role playing games, and that's you know, it's just the shortcut. Do you think that's still it, true? I think in some ways, I think when you talk about video games, that's not the case at all. You know, I think when you look mm. at you know PC gaming, console gaming, you know, I think players there understand there's a wide variety of games and a wide mm. variety of worlds. I think one of the things that is I'm very interested to see how this might develop over the next couple of years is when you look at the role-playing game hobby in terms of the, the, the big games, in terms of what sells, they're still mostly fantasy games that mm. operate similar to how D&D operates. And what I think will be interesting to see is as you get new designers coming in and new ideas coming in, what's the sort of the next Vampire of the Masquerade? You know, what's the game that will come in and really take a different approach to role-playing games and really connect with a broad audience. Because I think that's where, you know, the sort of D&D is role-playing kind of comes in, be- that, that you get the sense that role-playing, tabletop role-playing is it's fantasy gaming with leveling, and it's this sort of just, you know, ge- not generic. I mean, I don't want to, you know, but I think the perception easily could be it's a sort of generic Western European fantasy. Mm-hmm. The um, And so I think seeing games move into other genres one thing I've noticed, and maybe it's just me, but it seems like that uh, Call of Cthulhu seems to be, you know, it, it, I don't know if you want to call it a comeback because it's always been a great game, but it seems like Chaosium is doing, there's more support there. I've noticed on the the sales rankings on online stores, it's really seems to be strong, have a presence there. I haven't really delved into what's going on with streaming, but I think Cthulhu is probably the kind of game that would be great for streaming you know, yeah. because you have that horror aspect to it. I think that would translate very well. You know, if you had a, a strong cast and a, someone who, you know, in the keeper role who is really delivering, you know, good storytelling, that could really not only stand on its own, but feel very distinctive. 
you know yeah. and so that's as a gamer i'm i'm excited to see the games that start like filling in niches that D doesn't naturally fit because you know, i, I want to play those games <laughs> <laughs> yeah another how we roll podcast is currently doing some um stuff with scott dorward who's written a lot for cavalli and he's running uh, them through a, oh, cool. the paul cavalli stuff and that kind of thing. So, yeah, there's definitely other things happening out there, which is always good to see. It's interesting that you mentioned fantasy there as well, because a couple of our loyal listeners have been chucking a couple of questions our way as well. And one of them was, are we ever going to get like a science fiction or other version of D&D? Is it, or is it so bad in fantasy that that's really just its like, core identity? And, and anything that's going to be too far away removed from that genre is probably going to be a different game. Yeah, you know, it's tricky to think about. You know, we, we've talked about it here. You know, how, how would we handle other genres? And I, I think the approach we'd want to take is to really think of it as the world and the setting. And so something like Gamma World. Gamma World's a really great concept. The setting of Gamma World hasn't necessarily had a lot of, a lot of meat put on its bones. It's more mm-hmm. of a, a framework. Like, here is what this world is like. But you, don't, like, you can't necessarily think, oh, in Gamma World, who's the, the, the most powerful villain? You know, who are the great heroes? You know, right. what are, like, what's the most dangerous set of ruins you could explore? You know, whereas in Dungeons and Dragons, you could say, you know, the Forgotten Realms, you know, we know the biggest dungeon is Undermountain. The biggest city is Waterdeep. Uh, Elminster is the most powerful wizard. Just those kind of, like, anchor points of a setting. And I think it would be fun to explore a game like that and, and take a path of fleshing out the setting in a way that feels authentic to what the game has been but maybe gives especially newer players that foundation where they can understand what's going on. Mm. And the interesting thing is you think about, you know, in terms of the rule set or like, you know, is this still Dungeons and Dragons? You know, there's an argument to say, if you were to do Gamma World, to call it actually like Dungeons and Dragons Gamma World, which sounds to an experienced player that might sound a little nonsensical. It's like mm. saying Star Wars, Star Trek, right? But, <laughs> but, but you are signaling to someone who maybe, who doesn't have experience with it that, oh, this is like Dungeons and Dragons, but there's, it's been tweaked. You know, it's, it's, it's yeah. different. It's a different genre. And that, that's a conversation we've had too. And I think right now where we are, you know, we're, we're in the, about the fifth year, we're, we're closing on the fifth anniversary of the release of fifth edition. And I think this is kind of the time where we'll start thinking about, you know, is there space for, for wizards to do some new games uh, in the role-playing space, you know, bring back some of the non-fantasy settings. I mean, we're, we're spinning up, we did a, an Eberron release last year. We did uh, the Ravnica product last year for the, the magic tie-in. So we're starting to expand, extend our reach setting wise within fantasy. And I think moving into new genres and non-fantasy settings would be, would be a logical next step, but it also has to stand up to scrutiny of like, you know, is this something that players are expressed interest in? You know, do we see a market need for it? Do we see players and DMs wanting to, to, to do this? So. Hmm. Sure. Five years. Where did five years go? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's right. gone by very fast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, we we make a joke about it on our podcast. We've just got about got round to reviewing the Dungeon Master's Guide. <laughs> when, we, when we flick to this, the publication date, I can't believe what have we been doing with ourselves all this time. <laughs> it is, and it's having worked on three, five, and fourth. I was do I was running the, the doing the math in my head uh, a couple of days ago on five years in for fifth. If you compare that to when third launched, mm-hmm. you know, you go from two thousand to two thousand five. You've already seen the release of three five, yeah, and yeah. in 05, we're working on fourth internally. And when you go from the fourth's release date in 08 to 2013, you know you're a year away. Fourth, fifth edition has been announced, you know, and you're a year away from the release. So in some ways, we if working on D and D, we haven't had this much stability with the rule set since since the TSR days. Since AD and D, I guess, yeah. yeah, yeah. And it's very, it's really weird to think of. 
you know, how could the game grow now? Like now that we have a set of rules that people seem to like, you know, we, we see it's, it, 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 they're doing well sales wise. We're getting good feedback. You know, it, it is kind of a luxury now to start thinking about how can we expand our reach? You know, it's no longer just about how can we, how can we continue to sell product to existing role players? We don't mm. have that solved. We have that stable. You know, I would never call it a solved problem because gamers are too complicated to say, we know exactly what you want for the next four years. But it's something where we understand more of the parameters and we don't have to really put in a ton of sort of white space design thinking mm. into solving that. And so now we can start applying, applying that to like other genres, other approaches. Um, you know, one of the things I find really inspirational is um, I, I'm a big Warhammer fan. I've, I've played, you know, 40K since the late 80s. Sure. Yeah. Um, and I love in the newest releases where uh, in the new edition of 40K, they've condensed the rules down to, I think it's four pages. Mm-hmm. Uh, Age of Sigmar doing something similar. And it just, that to me is like, that's a really interesting design challenge. Like, you know, could you boil D&D down to four pages and make that a game that works? You know, and does that open up a new audience? You know, younger players, people who don't have much time, you know, they don't have the time to invest in reading a player's handbook. Uh, mm. You know, things like that. So that to me gets gets really exciting to think of the next five years, what we what, what we might be able to do. Yeah, you, you're talking to uh, two <laughs> two people who cut their teeth at Games Workshop. We both did our share in the trenches there, <laughs> both cool. paid and unpaid. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> and, and there's a company who I, I, I know you're a fan. I, you, you you tweet about your kill team stuff. Are you painting yeah. at the moment? <laughs> yeah. Okay. So you must look at Games Workshop and think, well, there's a company who's been through. I always think there's parallels between Wizards of the Coast and Games Workshop, and and everyone in the UK sees it that way too because. In the UK, Games Workshop is our TSR and our yeah. Wizards of the Coast, and um, and two companies that have had you know ups and downs like all companies do, uh, but two companies that seem to be really flourishing. Which is it sounds it feels like the hobby's never been in a better place as both a an industry perspective and from a people sitting around the kitchen table perspective. Yeah, no, I think there are a lot of parallels there, and, and I think a lot of it is we we're at a space now where I think large companies understand the internet in terms of like what feedback from the internet looks like. I mean, I don't think that's true across the board, but at least I think it's true for wizards and from you know, as a fan, I think it's true right now for, for games workshop too, mm. where I think companies went through a phase of when the internet really first became prominent, you know, late nineties, early aughts to just, Oh, taking as gospel, whatever the internet said. And then I think <laughs> that I think people realize, wait, this is a very different subset of fans than our typical fan. So let's just ignore everything the internet is saying. And then waking up and realizing that's not working either. Maybe what we should do is like take the middle path where like we listen to the internet, but we don't necessarily just do what the internet says. We're <laughs> using it more as like a leading edge indicator. Like, is there, this might be a problem. It might not be, but getting kind of out of the business of, of turning on a dime, just making radical changes due to instant feedback instead of taking more considered approach. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's where, you know, D and D definitely is. And I feel like, uh, you know, again, as a fan of Warhammer, I feel that's kind of where 40 K and age of Sigma are now. You can see the community influence, but sometimes it takes a while for it to, for the actual solution to the actual problem to manifest itself. Yeah. yeah and you can view that as a, a bug or a feature sometimes as well. Like I'm looking at, the new Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay, for example, that went out to an audience 
uh, and got a lot of feedback and then changed some stuff and then has come out and been published. But equally, things like the new Savage Worlds and, and various other games that seem to be in this thing. And I think the internet as a whole at first was very much like, well, why haven't the company done their proper playtesting and why haven't they fixed this and why is this still a problem? And why are they coming to the fans for it? They should be doing it themselves. What are we paying them for? And I think there's a, more of a shift now as people are kind of realising, like, well, we've got input. Like, as a fan, I can go on a forum and say, look, you've got this, this and this, and I think it worked better that way. And I might get ignored or not, but I have a voice and I think companies going out to a large fan base and saying, here's the beta, here's the alpha, whatever, let us know what you think and getting that feedback surely ends up with a better product for most people more generally than a company, which might be four guys in a shed who sit away and make their own game and then release it to the entire world saying, this will be perfect for everyone. It's, it's going to be a feature rather than a bug that you let the fan base involved in some of the design or at least to influence where you go next, right? Oh, yeah. And, and I think that getting that feedback is invaluable. You know, and with the with the internet being now so ubiquitous, and you know, it used to be you had you had to rely on the people who were active in a forum, and now you know, with surveys and with things like social media, you're reaching a large audience. They might not say anything back to you on that that platform, but they are willing to click a link and give you their opinion and say on a survey. You know, to mm-hmm. select you know one to five. You know, with one being I hate it and five being I love it. What do you think of this? What do you think of that? I do think one of the big lessons we learned from the the, the fifth edition playtest was. It's a very useful tool, but you do need to have a very clear idea of what it is you want from the community. If you give people a game and then just say, tell me what you think, you're going to get a wide variety of opinions. I think as a designer, what you need to be able to do is say, here's the game, tell me what you think, but I know what I'm looking for. Like, I know that really I need to understand, are these, say, character classes balanced? Or are these monsters easy to, to play or easy to use at the table? Because you will get a wide variety of feedback, and the the difficult part is deciding what to do with that feedback. Mm-hmm. And if, if if you don't have a clear idea of the question, if you're looking for the question you're answering within the the feedback itself, you can easily get get yourself in a strange position. You may mm-hmm. end up with something you weren't quite intending, or something that's a little too narrow. So I think that's the one thing uh, I think we've learned is it's not just asking for feedback it's understanding what it is you want like at the end of the day what is the yes no question you're trying to answer you know because especially when you start reading like written out feedback you can you can go you can plunge down a rabbit hole right (laughs) and because everyone you know on the individual level everyone has their quirks everyone has their their different desires right an individual gamer might say i want a ton of combat options and i want very tactical combat and i want combat to take five minutes you know, they can say that <laughs> you can't design that. Like if you try to design that, you're going to make nobody happy, but you know, and that's why you'd sort of take a step away and say, okay, what's the aggregate, you know, of people, you know, wh- where's the opinion sure. going. And now that I sort of see that now I want to zoom in and find the specifics of what people are saying that backs up that sort of aggregate data, you know, the, the aggregate response or the overall sentiment I'm seeing rather than trying, you know, if you try to design to the individual, you're best off just designing it for yourself. <laughs> yeah. Make yourself happy because if you're just making one individual person happy, that's that's not enough of an audience. <laughs> if you're just trying to sell your game to, to make it to make a go of it, have you yeah. ever found uh, that sort of feedback to be in any way constraining? I mean, obviously, moving into fifth edition and, and the next playtest was was such a big leap, and and your audience at the time, I think, we're fair to say, were maybe. <sighs> 
the sacred cows is the kind of phrase that comes up quite a lot when you think about D&D. You know, it, it, has your design team ever wanted to like, not have armor class and hit points, but you feel like we can't do that because then look what we're going to do, look at the feedback that we get. Is Does it ever like... Does it ever pull you in when you want to push forward into something really, really dynamic and new? There is definitely a tension there, you know, and one of the worries we had, um, we started with the fifth edition playtest process was we were worried that the audience would want to push us in a direction that was much more complicated than we felt would be healthy. Yeah. And it, and luckily, it turned out we did find that people tended toward wanting easier to pick up rules, rules that were more intuitive. So it worked out well. But I think that goes back to like when you're feeling like oh, we really want to go in a new direction. Let's strike out something new and surprising. I think the value of playtesting changes significantly. Yeah. Um, if let's say we were to like let, let, if Wizards was going to do a completely new role playing game, you know, like we look at what a lot of the really interesting stuff being done with indie games and decide we think there's something there or we think we can connect with an audience there. I don't know if I would do a public playtest of that kind of game because I think that that at that case you're not the answers you're looking for aren't necessarily in the existing group of people who play role-playing games. You know, you're, you're launching something wholly new. And so you're probably going to get feedback that says, make it look like the things that have come before. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's what I was trying to get at whether, whether the, the fan base might be conservative with a small C because of their legacy and their sense of ownership of, yeah. of something they've had for a long time. Yeah, no, I think you get that, especially with um, with a game like Dungeons and Dragons that has such a long history. Hmm. And in some ways, though, that, that that can be a bug. It can be a feature. I think with D anD D, it's generally a feature because when you put Dungeons and Dragons on the cover, you are there's so many people who have played some flavor of Dungeons and Dragons that there is real value in that continuity. Hmm. You want people to see, here's what I understood and about this game, and now in picking up this new version of it, I can understand how we got here. One of the things I think is interesting, I, I've never had the opportunity to do this because it's, it, it, I just don't see, I don't know how we would ever do it, but I would love to see, you know, imagine when third, fourth, fifth edition launched hmm. to take someone who was only familiar with the player's handbook of the prior edition, because that's actually the, the, the typical gamer. You know, if, yeah, if yeah. you know, most you know gamers like us, we, we buy plenty of game systems, we buy plenty of supplements, but the typical D&D player, at least, they, they own a player's handbook and that's it. You want to make sure when they buy their next player's handbook that they can put these two books next to each other and they can draw clear lines from one to the next. I think if you aren't able to do that, then you're making people feel like they're buying a wholly different game. You know, it's not something that they recognize. And so it's constraining in the sense that if you're building Dungeons and Dragons, you've already conceptually laid out, here's what this game is about. You know, it, it is this... You know, to be fair to the game, it's very just you know incredibly wide a range of things you can play you know you can play the campaign of pure dungeon crawling and then you can play the game of you know, this is the campaign where you are rival chefs competing to you know make the most exotic dishes that the land has ever seen the um but people know what they're signing up for and so i feel like myself personally i am such a goober for dungeons and dragons <laughs> that it never gets old <laughs> i i am probably one of those fans who would say no but this is you should have armor class and hit points and that that's how it should work you can do things like we'll make armor class now go up instead of down and i'll go "Ooh, wow right like that's yeah. really amazing <laughs> and you probably <laughs> overreact to it a bit when you think no that's just we're making the math work if this is a board game we would say of course that's how you do it but it's D&D where armor class used to go down, right? And so, oh, sure, yeah. The, um, but yeah, is so there, I, I, oh, sorry. 
No, I was just going to say, is there an element of um, the marketing with it as well? So I'm thinking of stuff like quite a lot of people didn't like healing surges, for example, in fourth. But then if you call them hit dice in fifth, everybody loves them. And it's like, it's, <laughs> it's the same thing, but you just put, just do a better marketing job and all of a sudden it's great. It's d and again, you know. No, I, I think there's something there because when you say hit dice, it goes back to the armor class thing, you know, armor class going up versus armor class going down. When you say healing surge, I think people say, oh, this is a new thing. I have to learn this new thing. And mm-hmm. my feeling is gamers hate to learn new rules. Like healing surges, oh, now I have to learn. I just want to play the game, right? I just want to make up my character and go. So now I have to learn this entirely new thing and it's just a pain. But when you say, oh, your hit dice, you can spend these when you're resting to heal. Then they go back, oh, there's a new way to use hit dice. Oh, hit <laughs> dice, that was that was a useless mechanic, but now I only but now I'm using it. Oh, that's that, that what an improvement, right? And I think that's so clever. No, it's something <laughs> that it's there. And the other side of the coin, too, is I think we found in fifth that um in fourth you could use your healing surgeries when it was a five-minute short rest. Mm-hmm. We were kind of wrestling with that mechanic during the playtest. By changing that from five minutes to an hour. Suddenly, we could see gamer. The players were just, oh, I get it. Like you could see them going from, this is something that I just expect to always get, which then triggered this reaction of, if the fights felt much less impactful, because you would know in the back of your mind as you were playing that sure the the ogre just crit me for thirty, but we'll just rest and I'll get those back. Mm to now oh resting is an hour and especially my campaigns i love rolling for wandering monsters the players always you know i take you know we're gonna rest for an hour so i take my 60 20s and get rid of if any of them are 20 and wandering you know wandering monster the players do feel more of that sense of risk and danger you know that that crit from the ogre that does 20 or 30 i might be a seventh or eighth level fighter i still have 30 hit points left but now i'm worried because i'm thinking how is this going to come back to haunt me mm. will we will we be able to actually take that that short rest and then be ready for what comes next. And it's such a minor change when you think about it in the grand scheme of things, but it's just one of those things where we could see the, the player reaction just change so dramatically with what felt like a relatively minor change. Mm. In the, uh, I remember in the playtest surveys that you were doing, you, you talked a lot about what does D&D feel like when you play it? And I know that was quite a confusing question for me at the time, but looking back and the way I feel about D&D and all role-playing games now is that sometimes those little nuances, we get obsessed about systems. And as system designers, we live our lives in systems. But but sometimes little things like the change from five minutes to an hour, it makes the game feel different. It scratches different things in your brain. And the storyteller in you thinks that that's significant, whereas five minutes feels instant. And because it's instant, it's worthless. But but because it takes longer time and there's risk, it, it does strange things to you, doesn't it? Just writing a few words and numbers in a rules book has a really big effect on people's brains. And that's what I love about role-playing games. And D&D is like a, a feeling almost more than it is a set of games rules. Although sometimes it's fan base and, and the world at large seems to just see it as a bunch of instructions. And I don't think it's that at all. No, I agree. And I think it's interesting seeing how that feel, you know, how, how people address that in terms of when they think of Dungeons and Dragons, what it means to them, mm. uh, because it is highly personal. I have this sort of hobby horse of D and D is not a prescriptive game and that it tells you what to do. It instead is a descriptive game and that it describes something that you would, you might be doing already or that because you know what Dungeons and Dragons is, you've been playing for 30 years I don't need to tell you how to play D&D. I just need to give you the tools to play D&D. But that does cause a sort of tension, though, for the new player coming in. Yeah. And I think 
I think, but I think that's why streaming has been such a boon because now you can watch someone play, and now you understand what it is you're supposed to be doing, rather than you know. I, this is an example I trot out all the time, but you know, just the idea that if I wanted to teach someone how to play tennis, what I do is I take them to a tennis court, hand them a racket, and we knock the ball around a little bit and I explain what we're doing. What I don't do is hand them the you know the international you know rules for tennis and say read the rule book, and once you've understood everything in there let's play tennis, right? That would be a terrible way to teach someone tennis, right? Mm-hmm. Like you, you, most of it is irrelevant to the actual play of the game. And it misses the point of why this game is fun. You know, why do you enjoy playing tennis? It's not because, well, I really think that the, the design of the play space and the position, that's just so fascinating, right? Like it, that's not why you play tennis, right? You play tennis because you watch, a, you know, a John McEnroe or Serena Williams and you find that, well, that's inspiring and it's exciting to watch the volley back and forth and you, the constant, you're on your feet moving and the, the tactics of you're, you're moving at a breakneck speed to return a shot, but you're also trying to hit it just the right way to put your opponent back on their heels. You know, all of that, that that's what makes playing tennis exciting. It's not an appreciation of the rules. And I think D&D is similar in that it is, it's in the moment when you see that light go on of someone playing for the first time and they realize, you know, oh, I can do anything. Or I'm going to think like, my, oh, I am, you know, I might be a, a, you know, a university student, you know, studying French, but in the game, I'm this burly, rude, half-orc barbarian seeking revenge for those who, you know, killed my, my tribe, you know, and you get that moment of, I can be someone else for a bit, you know, and everyone else is going to be someone else too. Uh, that's really what, what, you know, it's not armor class, right, that, that gets you to play mm-hmm. the game. It's that immersive quality of it. That, you know, and, and that's not true. I mean, there are definitely people who appreciate the rules and get into it, but um, from that angle. But we see, you know, in the market research we've done that for, for most fans, it really is that, that immersive storytelling element. Yeah, agreed. So if we can take you back a little bit, actually, you, you sort of moved, you did quite a lot for fourth edition and then moved to fifth, but do you feel at some point you got a poison chalice with fourth? Because it was quite um, quite a controversial edition compared to all the other editions of D&D that have, there have been. It seemed like there was a lot of backlash from fans or there was a bit of a schism within D&D itself. Was that, it was obviously a good opportunity to sort of take the helm, but did you find that, uh, how challenging was that? I guess I want to say, or, you know, was there's, there's definitely there's a risk reward uh, equation yes. there, and I'm wondering whether you, you think that the reward was worth it. You probably do now. I don't know at the time oh, yeah. whether you felt yeah. the same. With, with hindsight, it was wonderful, but no, at the time, I remember the, the the first Gen Con I went to after I had been promoted, and I did a we usually we typically did a, a Gen Con a Q and A panel, right. and everyone was very angry that year. They were not happy. I think it was 2011 or 2000. We had not yet announced the playtest. And I remember just thinking, this is it. This is the last Gen Con I'll be at you know, for this job. <laughs> There's no way. Like, people are so angry. But I, I think what it, it was really an opportunity at the end of the day, because we were following a track that had been started with 3.0 when it was launched in 2000. And the feeling was back then, that people who played D&D, they really found value in having rules that comprehensively addressed everything that could happen in play. And that was very much driven by uh, the, the RPGA, the organized play wing of things, where you're often playing with strangers, you're playing once a week for a couple hours. Having comprehensive rules in an environment makes a lot of sense because you have a different dungeon master every week and different players. So if the rules can step in and be a lot more prescriptive about things, then you know each session is much more predictable about how it will play out. 
Uh, you don't have to worry about someone feeling the game should work differently. Like, okay, that's nice, but at the end of the day, we do what the book tells us to do. So we're all on the same page. And it's all sensible within that construct. But I think when you looked at people who were playing at home, not playing organized play, playing with the same dungeon master every week, playing with the same group every week, they didn't need that rigidity. But to go back to sort of loop around to the playtesting aspect of it, the playtesters available to the R&D team on D&D from that time period, up until we started to work on 5th edition, it was primarily driven by organized play because that's how we could reach out to people. You know, we didn't right. have mechanisms in place like Twitter, like Facebook, you know, like uh, a, a platform we could use to reach beyond that. We really had to rely on people showing up and then reaching out to us and saying, I, I want to, to give you feedback. Mm. And so I think that just naturally, and I don't think there's anything, you know, malevolent there. I think it's just a natural evolution of that's the audience we're, we're talking to. And we thought that that was the audience for the game as a whole. And I think I mentioned this earlier, like when we started the, the fifth edition playtest and seeing how much people valued simplicity, speed of play, it was 100% counter to what we had seen in feedback before that. Mm-hmm. The, um, and so I think once we started there, you know, I really did have the sense that, you know, with fourth edition, you know, three, three, five, and fourth, the real issue there, and really what fourth was trying to address was we just weren't getting in new players. You know, we would do intro products and we just, the sales were always, they were okay, but they weren't really where we felt they should be based on, you know, what we understood about the size of the D&D audience and how many people were interested in D&D. And so a lot of those, you know, the three to three, five to four, the change was all about how can we connect with a bigger audience? And so on some level, it was scary in the sense that like, what if there is no larger audience? You know, what if it really is (laughs) role-playing games are over? Like it was just an ephemeral thing. It made sense before. You could play you know, video games like Skyrim that could give you these grand worlds to visit. Tabletop role-playing was this quaint, old-fashioned activity that was on its way out. I know even back into the 90s, people, there was plenty of people who held that opinion. Yeah. Um, and so that was probably the scariest part. But the, the exciting part was to think, you know, here's where we've been doing for the past, at the time, over 10 years, 12 years. And the game's still here. You know, it's not in the best place it could be right now. <laughs> But we still see interest. We still see, like, if you, when, when Hasbro did, you know, does their sort of market studies, they still found plenty of people who said, D&D sounds interesting to me. I don't even know what it is, but it sounds interesting. And so that was the hope, you know, make something a lot more accessible and kind of buck the trend of the prior, you know, 10, 12 years. And, and that's where we are today. And this is, you know, I like to think it's almost like I got to write the fanfic version of, you know, my <laughs> go at launching a new edition of D&D. <laughs> it's, everything is so, so far so good. I cannot, I have no right to complain about anything related to D&D. <laughs> it turned out pretty well, didn't it? <laughs> <laughs> cool. Right. Well, what I might do now, just to take a quick break. Is give you a lightning round talking of Twitter and so forth. I did that call earlier today, just to, not mentioning that I was in an interview, but just saying to people, like, if you could ask the designers of D and D any questions, what would they be? So the, you have to take these tongue in cheek because there, there's a mixture of them. <laughs> but the, and we the, can deny all responsibility. For yeah, that's it. I could sneak some around. I stuck them through to you earlier, mate. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm pretending you're a troll, but you're 47 when anybody asks. So the, one of the first ones we've got is, um, well, there's a couple actually around Greyhawk setting. Uh, like, and you get something from, can we please have a revamped, updated world of Greyhawk setting? And then someone equally is asking, well, how do you balance having something like Eberron to please like the old crowd and creating new settings? So like, I guess what people are asking there is, like, what, what do you do about settings and, and how much do you feel you've got to go with a bit of fan service and go back to 
old things that people like, like armor class, like you're saying, that Greyhawk's one of those things that's D&D. So how do you balance that, that conundrum? So I, I think it's a process similar to how we approach D&D as a whole. We know with Eberron, Eberron's actually an easier one because we those pieces that are like, this is what the fans want. It's much more obvious. You know, it's Warforged, it's the last war. It's the different villain groups. It's the pulp feel, you know, combined with that noir tone. So what's fun about it is... What, what I'm excited about, you know, when you look at what Keith uh, Baker did last year, the the product he did on the DMs Guild, I love, there was a table he threw in there, and I think it was something like, why do you owe someone 500 gold pieces? You know, and, and just giving people something simple, but just very evocative of the setting. You know, you're, you're a pulp character, you're a neo-noir character, you're, you start out in debt, because that's what you do, right? If you made mm. good life choices, you wouldn't be an adventurer in Eberron, right? If you and so that's what it really excites me about it. And I think for me, the challenge lies in how can we deliver that sort of that, that fan service element in a way that's really evocative and makes the non-fans sit up and take notice. And then with a setting like Greyhawk, the real challenge is, you know, this is a setting that people love and have kept alive for 40 years. What is it about it that really does connect with people? And being honest about it, you know, I, I would say for me, a lot of what I love about Greyhawk is when you read the original box set, Gary Gygax was an incredibly creative guy, and he wrote in a way where he assumed the audience wanted to create their own stories. Hmm. So he would drop in these sort of hints and references that were just waiting for you to follow up on and tie together yourself, rather than being very explicit about here is what happens next. How do you then translate that into a setting? You know, how do you make a product out of that? And I think that's a really fun challenge, you know, but but that I think is important piece to to capture so people look at it and go this is authentic to what i loved about this but it's being expressed in a new way and especially a way that can get new fans to understand oh this is why people remember this this is why this is exciting and and feeling free to break the rules of fifth edition you know in the sense that in fifth edition we don't we don't make a lot of hay about you know how much water does your character have and how much food do you have but if we were to do dark sun i would want to keep it lean and simple but yeah, we would sure. definitely have you tracking your food and water you know, and we oh you got you you want to march faster? That's great. You're burning through water more quickly. You're you're looking over that map of the table and is going okay. What's the nearest water source that we know of? You know because we're running low, and if we don't get to water within three days, we're in real trouble. You know, and then that makes the role playing. You know, when you meet the caravan that's traveling, like that. Okay, did we steal from these guys? Like, can we trust them? You know, and really plays up that feel of Dark Sun and maybe a way that the the setting hasn't before. Yeah, that's cool. I'll move on to a couple of nitty gritty ones. Uh, <laughs> Someone's asked, "What the hell is a hit point?" <laughs> it is what it, this is. This, no, this is a great example of there are, are are people and designers who would say we should have a canonical answer, but really, it is what the table thinks it is. And by right. that, I mean for some groups, it, it's you know, if you're running a gritty a, a game with a with a gritty tone, a hit point might be like that is your structural integrity. If you're running the more story based game, it's your character's energy, your character's ability to stay in the fight. But really, at the end of the day, the hit point is the way back in the 70s. It's the mechanic that separated your character from in Chainmail from all, you know the, the original miniatures game. It's what made a character a character and not just another unit on the table. You know, where yeah, a single sure. hit knocked it out. It was basically Gygax putting down a flag and saying, this figure is special. They don't, they aren't so easily defeated. They have that sort of, whether it's narrative or whatever the explanation you have for it is, this person that we have predetermined is an important part of the story. 
and that's really you know again it, the individual and I, I and I mean this sincerely it's not just I'm not just dodging the question <laughs> the uh, the because I know it comes up but you know it's this idea that it really is depends on the kind of story you're telling within the game rules and I think if we were to try to be very canonical about it I think that the game would lose something I think it would start to push the game in a way that wouldn't suit every table out there sure uh, we've got another question from someone who's or was locked in Mortal Kombat with a sum of vampires. Uh, why does the spell daylight not produce sunlight? Oh, <laughs> and that, well, that, that is the opposite side of the thing where daylight, I believe, is second or third level. Uh, we didn't want to trivialize vampires in the game and, and other creatures that were like, you know, drow that have issues with, 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 with actual sunlight. And that kind of goes back to when you think of the world building aspect. If, you know, vampires are this great threat, you know, if there's a vampire loose in water deep, it's an issue. If any fifth level cleric could instantly incinerate it, then it's not much. Or not instantly, <laughs> but I'm over sun. But yeah. it does. It did trivialize some of the folklore elements of the game, right? Where people expect sunlight. These creatures hate sunlight. We don't want a third level spell to step in and have that much of an, uh, an oversized impact on, on how those creatures worked. Well, yeah. How much does garlic cost? That's <laughs> <laughs> so another one. Well, there's there's two or three actually in a similar vein, and I'm wondering if this falls back to what we were saying earlier about um, if you did a science fiction game, would it be D&D? But people have asked questions around if you're going to adapt D&D but not have classes and levels, how would you do that? Or if you wanted a more gritty, deadly OSR-style D&D, how would you do that? Uh, and there's quite a few questions in that sort of vein, like, please, can we have a non vancian magic system or so? Yeah. So <laughs> do, do you think there's stuff that could be done there or there's room perhaps a, for, I don't know, a D&D Twitch channel or something we go, this is it's not official D&D, but here's our... This is our take on how we could do something different. Is that is that something you have plans for? Or you think do you think when you start doing things like you make it non fancy and magic and you don't have levels and classes and you take all those things out, then really you get to the point where it's not D and D anymore. So play a different game, or arguably. No, I, I think where we we would see you know if we're moving the game into different genres, you know, I think right now you know class and levels work well for the heroic fantasy we're aiming for, mm. but I don't think there's anything to the game engine itself where like you must have. Uh, a character class or character levels. We, by design, tried to make the individual pieces of 5th edition avoid leaning on each other too much, where they were talking to each other as in as simple a direct way as possible, so that if we're talking about level... So, for instance, if you'd open the Monster Manual, and I'm sure there's an exception, I'm positive there's an exception, because I'm about to make a big statement, <laughs> but I, I, I don't think there's any monster that ever refers to a character's level where it says, oh, like, right. fifth level or lower characters, you know, because you just never know. Like, if we're to do, especially, like, a horror game, where we don't have that power fantasy aspect of it, where you don't, just because I'm a horror investigator, you know, I'm an investigator of the weird, I've been doing it longer, that I'm probably just better at running away than other characters. <laughs> I probably am not better at going toe-to-toe with a Shoggoth. <laughs> um, so you might not have leveling in the sense we'd think of it. It might be something where, where, the, where the fifth edition skill system is very, like, either you have the skill or you don't, I can Im- easily imagine a skill system that is much more granular where you are spending ranks. And really what it comes down to is just the complexity budget. You know, we don't necessarily want D and D players doing that because they're also picking their race. They're also picking their class. They're also picking their equipment. They're then picking their class features, adding a skill system on top of that with a lot of granular choices. You know, when you talk about trying to keep the game accessible, you're asking people to do maybe more than they would be willing to. But in a modern day horror game, you may say, well, no, that, that is character creation. You're going to name your character, maybe pick a profession, which you know, kind of like Call, like Call of Cthulhu starts guides your skill choices. But mm. then really from there, you're going to look at your list of skills and decide which ones am I good at. 
because th- that's that's the long and short of character creation. Same thing with hit points, right? It's as simple as you you could easily you could imagine running D anD D where you just didn't give people hit points after first level, <laughs> you know, and and there you have a much grittier game. Yeah, you know, I don't think you know it's kind of a sledgehammer approach to it, but there's nothing within the system itself that assumes you're getting those things and then breaks the core mechanics. Uh, we tried to really section those pieces off and keep the interactions between the pieces of the game as simple and direct as possible. So, I, I, for instance, I have a, a Gamma World sort of 5th edition variant I've worked up. It doesn't have character classes. You essentially just roll on tables to see what your character's good at, what your mutations are. And those are just filling in your skills and your abilities. Um, there's no concept of, like, I'm a warrior. You know, like, well, yeah. you're a warrior because you hold a really high strength and you're a, you know, you're a mutated dinosaur and you got the super strength mutation. So... Get up there and you know mixed up in close combat. That's what you're good at, you know. Yeah. But that's also a good example of a lot of that game would be like the relics you find in salvage would determine a lot of your capability, you know, because that's part of the fun is digging through ruins and finding vastly overpowered but incredibly dangerous tech that you barely understand. Yeah, go cool. right. I've just got one more question off that list that I have to ask for a friend, uh, which I might have to qualify after it. So take it with a grain of salt. But he says, um, <laughs> "You asking for a friend." <laughs> yeah, yeah, it literally is for friend as well, not me. <laughs> but Mike, why do you hate Warlords so much? Was the like the headline, <laughs> and, and then he writes about a side of A four about basically. I think he thinks they were the coolest class in fourth, and they don't exist anymore, and he's very upset. No, it, it's an interesting. So there, there, are, there are a couple of reasons why you don't see a Warlord class in fifth. The obvious one is just when we did surveys, it wasn't a class that was necessarily ranked very high in terms of what people wanted. I think part of that was just because we know, looking back, uh, fourth edition didn't attract the audience that other editions did. So you just, yeah. I think, had a lot of players coming going, I don't know what that is. The other side of the coin is the the Warlord made a ton of sense in fourth because it was a very uh, a tactically rich game. And you, we ex- by design, we expected a fight to take about an hour to complete. And it was really meant to be a, a, a game that really focused on tactical combat and the puzzle of overcoming an encounter hmm. um so in that in that context the warlord made a ton of sense because the warlord is really predicated on interacting with other characters who were using you know sort of part of that similar tactical puzzle and that challenge fifth doesn't have that focus so it's much more difficult to as a character class to pull it off you know what we we have done a few subclasses that that have that similar feel but to have an entire character class dedicated to it uh was just it's a bit much you know within the game's within how the game is built. Uh, you could imagine a world in which, say, 4th edition went the exact opposite way, where it was very much just about improv and role-playing and acting, and there was a character class that just focused exclusively on non-combat abilities, exclusively on interpersonal interaction. And I think you'd have a similar thing, where it's like, well, in this game, we kind of you know, we expect characters to have a, a broader array of abilities and to be a bit more autonomous in how they act, because we the game doesn't have that same focus. It really leaves the focus to the group. So I think you know that approach would be a similar thing. Where like it's just it, you can you can make that an aspect of another class, but to make an entire character class on its own with the same focus wouldn't really fit in well conceptually with the rest of the system. Fair play. I'm sure I'll get another Fair Air Force side of. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think one of the other things that people should tune in for talking about that kind of thing is you do um, a happy fun hour, as you call it, with a, a sort of. These subclasses of things, I think that's a really exciting 
It's a fun, well, it is a fun album. I think it's a really interesting thing for because you sort of chat to people on the chat as well, don't you? When you you build a subclass for something, for example, and people can join in and sort of like help you out with that process, and you go through your design process of what you're doing to to give people an insight. I think that's a really interesting tool. Oh, it's a lot of fun, and it's also it's fun to sort of think out loud as I work. I have definitely gotten insights just being forced to explain things, and then seeing you know what chat does with it, the community. Unfortunately, the show is on hiatus right now, but we will be coming back in about uh, three or four weeks. Uh, I just had a bit of a heavy workload at the start of the year, but I'm really looking forward to get back into it. And it, it is it is a lot of fun, and I think it's a fun way too, to sort of get out some of our design ideas. You know, like, here's why we did what we did, which is good if you want to follow our concept because you're looking to, like, I want to make my own subclasses, or if you want to break the rules entirely and think, well, that approach is terrible, and here's, you know, at least you understand what you're rebelling against. So, <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So, Mike, um, yeah, thanks ever so much for answering our, our listeners' questions. Both of our listeners sent us plenty of questions. <laughs> very kind of them, and we can deny our responsibility. Um, one thing we do like to ask our guests, uh, put you on the spot a little bit, I guess, is we, we always ask our guests if they can recommend anything to our listeners um, from from their own kind of like, you know, from their own fun perspective. Uh, we've had all kinds of game designers on who want to just give a shout out to to something that they're into at the moment, maybe something that they think doesn't get enough love or doesn't get enough attention or or maybe just something that you've got real Jones for yourself at the moment. So what what can you recommend to uh, to our listeners, Mike, at the moment? What's got you buzzing? Oh, sure. So I've got three things. Two of them are um, miniatures related, tabletop miniatures, which is one of my sort of passion outside of role playing. So in White Dwarf, uh, in the January issue, they published a set of skirmish rules for Age of Sigmar, which uh, I really I love skirmish wargaming. And mm-hmm. I was listening, I think it was uh, Jervis Johnson was on the, the, the Age of Sigmar uh, podcast and talked about how the war bands from Shadespire, which is their sort of card-based tactical game, make perfect war bands for skirmish. So now I'm obsessed with collecting them all and painting them and building skirmish <laughs> war bands up. Then on a similar vein, the uh, Battletech was another game which I was hugely into years ago. I've always had interest in it. The Catalyst just released a new core set for that with some very nice miniatures, very nice components. So I, I just I, it, I just got my copies last night so of, of the new sets. Cool. So I am very excited to get back into that. And then from a role-playing standpoint, uh, I have a Call of Cthulhu game I'm kicking off here at the office. Uh, it has, it's had a shift a couple times because I've been busy. I really like what Chaosium has done with, uh, with sort of the new Chaosium has done with Call of Cthulhu and with RuneQuest, you know, with the relaunches of both of those mm-hmm. games. Mm-hmm. So that's like for my tabletop gaming. Those are my, my three obsessions right now. Well, we'll be speaking to uh, Mike Mason soon as well. So if you have any questions for him, just let us know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we'll try for him online. <laughs> yeah, and you're not doing yourself any favours like to the people who say that D&D is just miniatures gaming, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Well, it's been great to talk to you, Mike. I'm aware that we're, we're slightly over time, so we're probably going to have to call it uh, quits there. But uh, we'd love to have you again, again sometime and uh, probably some oh. more D&D if that's good with you. Yeah, that'd be great. I had a great time. Thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me. I really appreciate it, Mike. Thanks ever so much, buddy. All right. Take care. Cheers, dude. Bye-bye.